Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello, I'm Andrew Neal, and this is The Backstory a series of in-depth interviews with people who have the power to shape events and to influence our understanding of them. My guest in this episode is a veteran Conservative MP who was first elected in 1987. He's been chairman of the party and after the Brexit referendum became the first Secretary of State for exiting the EU. David Davis is a staunch defender of civil liberties. We talk about that and his views on the Johnson government, Brexit and the cost of living crisis. We also talk about his call for the Prime Minister to resign over Partygate. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. Has his view changed since that moment in the House of Commons in January? And what does he think of the government's approach to the cost of living crisis? This is the backstory from Tortoise. David Davis, when you were a shadow Home Secretary, you used to talk about bagging a ministerial resignation like big game hunting. (laughs) (laughs) You had to kill with the first shot. Did you go too early with your call for Boris Johnson to resign? No, uh, that was aiming to do something different. I mean, the first thing to remember is that with Conservative leaders, it's always a slow death. The idea that the Conservative Party is a ruthless organisation that sets about dispatching rapidly uh, its its failing leaders is just not true. I mean, Theresa May took two years to go. Uh, John Major never went, you know, even though the challenge and the danger of keeping him was obvious. So so it it takes a long time. But what was happening back in the beginning of the year was that there were a lot of people... Sort of hesitating, saying, should I go, should I not, should I, should I send a letter in, should I not? And uh, I took the view, frankly, that somebody had to say that this needed to happen. Somebody, and, and up until then, it had been all mostly fairly new junior members of parliament. And I thought somebody with a bit of profile should say it. And, and it, it worked. It got around, around the world, as it were. Um, but it will still, I said at the time, I, I was interviewed shortly afterwards, just for five minutes, and I said... The thing I fear 
is a death of a thousand cuts, that it spreads gradually to the rest of cabinet and then to rest of government and takes until the autumn to happen. And that, I fear, unfortunately, is all coming true. So you think it is still death by a thousand cuts and that he will, Mr Johnson, will be gone by the autumn of this year? Yes, I do. And uh, the, the, the reasons, in essence, are the problems keep coming. There's a pipeline of them. There are others to come down the road. There's PPE. There's the investigation in London, which comes back to him, um, the lady whose name I, I can't instantly remember. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's the, the most dangerous one of all, from his point of view, is the Privileges Committee, because if they judge that uh, he has lied to the House deliberately, then uh, that will lead us either, either he'll resign or there'll be a constitutional crisis. So, so there's a whole series of things coming, but <clears throat> the thing is, every time you see this, the headlines, there's a flood of letters going in. A flood is two to three to four. It's not 20 to 30, you know. Um, and so they'll gradually build up. Uh, and I, my, the reason I said autumn is because it's the last chance. The party will, lots of members of the party will do sets of calculations. I'm afraid this is terribly cynical, but it's the way it works. Um, they'll do lots of calculations about their own seats, about their prospects for staying in government and keeping a job and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and if in the autumn it still looks bleak, and it will, I think, not so much care of Boris as care of other aspects of policy, uh, then they'll realise that's their last chance because next year he could call an election at short, in short notice. He does have this ability, though, to defy prediction and to survive. Uh, I mean, it takes 54 letters from Tory mm. MPs. 15% mm -hmm. of the parliamentary party have to mm. want him to go to trigger uh, a, a, an election on his leadership. Now, the Prime Minister has been fined for breaking the law in Downing Street. Mm -hmm. The Tories are now regularly behind in the polls. Mm -hmm. Labour has a, not a massive lead, but a reasonably comfortable and consistent lead now. Yeah. His own personal ratings have tanked. Yeah. Uh, the party culture he has presided over in 10 Downing Street has been laid bare in all its gore, mm -hmm. in all its embarrassment by Sue Gray. But he's still there and he seems to think he's over the worst. Well, you use the word embarrassment. It's a very important word when it comes to Boris, or rather the absence of it is. Um, I always used to say when I was Public Accounts Committee chairman that the primary weapon of a parliamentarian is embarrassment, the ability to embarrass the government. You can't embarrass Boris. So take a couple of the examples I was citing. When Theresa May didn't lose the leadership vote but came close, she said, I'll do this and then I'll leave. Yeah? Uh, John Major didn't wait for leadership vote. He called one in himself. Mm. You know, there is a certain uh, as aspect of character around each of those that doesn't apply to Boris. Boris's basic strategy is not terribly complicated. Is sit it out, wait. People get bored. The subject changes. Mm. I find a better argument. I do something good. I score some hit somewhere. You know, mm. something comes along. A Ukraine. A war in Ukraine. Yeah. Or, and you know, and and so that's his. That's his. It's always been. It was when he was. It's when he was um, uh, mayor of London. He had the same sort of thing happen. You know, he, I, I told one occasion he came out whenever when he's had some, some sort of terrible things in the papers and said to the staff, "Remember, this is just a show, and the show will go on." That's, that's his stance, you know.
You mentioned the investigation uh, involving Jennifer Arcuri. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, the, who, whose mm. name you had a little trouble <laughs> re- remembering there, but that's who it is. That happened when he was mayor of L- London, yeah. uh, if anything happened. Uh, you think that is a, still a danger to him? Oh, yeah, all these things are. I mean, because what we're in, uh, uh, and I'm afraid your listeners will, will think this is a terribly mechanistic argument, but I'm afraid it's just the truth. Uh, what we're in is a, is a sort of micro-ratchet. A letter goes in. Another letter goes in. Very, very rarely they come out. I mean, very few of the ones who said to come out actually yeah. have. A letter goes in. And, and, it's a, and it's an invisible process, and it's a sudden death process. And so, you know, we might be at 53 letters today. I don't think we are, but we might be. In which case, one slip... Tilts it. Tilts it. Um, and so anything... Could could do it, you know, because the other thing I remember is that the other, apart from the calculations that MPs do, and frankly the moral stances that some of them properly take as well, there's also other influences on them, particularly uh, their own associations and so on, and they get tired too. I what the, the, the you interviewed me, I think two days before I intervened on Boris. Actually, it was the day before. It was the day before. It's quite yeah. close time. It's you, 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 <laughs> largely your fault, actually, Andrew. <laughs> it usually is. <laughs> and uh, and I thought, well, I'm going to make a thousand enemies, but so be it, you know. Uh, what was astonishing to me is the next day, the Thursday, I'd got on the train, and of course we were wearing masks, and I got on the tube, wearing masks. When I got to the tube, I normally take my mask off when I get to the ticket barrier, mm-hmm. right? I got applauded as I went through the ticket barrier, you know, uh, and people kept coming up to me for the next week and saying, well said, Mr. Davis, you spoke for us. Uh, and I went to an association dinner in York the next day. And I thought, mm, this is going to be heavy weather, at least half of them are going to be pro-Boris and so on. Turned up, 100 people, four pro-Boris, 90 odd the other way, you know. And, and so... Um, you know, it's. I think this is percolating back, and as I say, it's a sudden death outcome. But the biggest threat must surely be the Parliamentary Privileges Committee. That is. That but, is. but the bar is quite high. It's not enough that he misled the House. It's deliberately. It has to be deliberate. And this is, uh, in a, uh, this is where people will have to make a judgment. Um, I think had there been, I don't know, four or five fines there would have been a problem, and I'll come back to why in a second. Um, or had there been a dozen photos, there would have been a problem. Why do I say that? Because broadly Boris's line has been, uh, I wasn't told. Mm. Well, I wasn't told doesn't hold up if you were actually there, mm. Yeah, I think. Um, uh, and you're holding a glass of wine. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not prudish about having a drink of wine, even at work, frankly, if you're working 24 hours a day. But what, I'm, uh, but what I think it does is it points to knowledge. And that's the... It's normally incredibly hard for a privileges committee to find a guilty verdict on deliberate misleading. Mm. But I think he's, he's used the thing, I wasn't told so many times, I wasn't informed as far as I'm aware. That sort of form of words, I think that's where they'll look. And that's where I would expect them to look. One of the things, surely, that has kept him in situ is the absence of any obvious successor. Do you see an obvious successor? Well, that's... Look, I, I don't comment on the would-be successors, but, but I will do to this extent. Your question you have to answer there is would the successors, and there are probably half a dozen 
prospective, realistic prospective successes, would any of them, them have done a worse job? You know, I mean, take take Ukraine, which has seen, been seen to be his, his saviour for the moment. Would they have done something different? Well, I don't think so, because actually most of the most of the significance of British involvement was essentially an MOD policy, you know, driven by uh, by Ben Wallace, by ben, the Secretary of State for Defence. That's correct, and I, I don't think I don't think that let's say Jeremy Hunt or Rishi Sunak is probably struck out now, but he was one of the ones at the time when the argument was being made, or any of them, frankly, would have stopped that happening. Uh, neither would they have... They, they might not quite have made the public presentation of it that Boris has done, the sort of slightly sort of sub-Churchillian stuff, but I'm not sure that's, that's that important. So the question is, would they... You may not think they're the best people in the world. After all, I mean, you and I were around when Margaret Thatcher took over, and even though I was a supporter, I wasn't 100% sure back then that she'd do it. Was a, it was a risk. It was a risk, you know, and these are all risks. Um, and the question you have to ask yourself is, would they, would they on bat... Would, what is the probability they do, do a less good job? I think the answer is not, not so. But... Getting rid of a prime minister, you would want some kind of idea as to where the the gene pool is for his successor. And the Tory gene pool seems quite depleted at the moment. Well, that's partly, I think, a, a strategy by Boris himself of not having people around him who might be challenges. I mean, Jeremy Hunt's a good case in point. I'm, I'm not a Jeremy Hunt advocate, don't get me wrong. But he, he was, was the former health secretary. He was the former health secretary. But he was also the foreign foreign secretary, and he came second uh, in the leadership contest. And that gives you in certain, the summer of twenty nineteen. And, and it gives you certain, if not rights, expectations. You know. Mm. So, for example, when I came second to David Cameron, um, he said uh, he was ruminating over saying of defence. I said, I "Don't want to do that." I said, "You know, I'll do." Shadow home or nothing. I'll happily go to the back benches, but I'll do, and of course he gave me shadow home, uh, and that's what you would expect. Um, for Boris to offer uh, Jeremy a demotion, in my view, is improper. You don't ask the person you've you know who's given you a run for your money um, and has come second in the party's uh, batting order to take a step down. So, and this applies across the board. You know, where's Liam Fox? Why is Penny Morton not in? Uh, why, where's uh, uh, Greg Clark. I mean, there are quite a lot of people around who could well have been in that cabinet who are not there. I very nearly uh, sent him a Christmas present the year uh, of his um, election victory, of uh, general election victory, um, which was a book uh, about Lincoln called Team of Rivals. Yes, which is about the quality of the people around Abraham All Lincoln. All his rivals pulled in <laughs> and, it, and it made a fabulous cabinet, you know. Um, uh, I didn't eventually because I thought I, I thought you might think I'm trying to bully Moy back yeah. in. I'd said to him no. So, um, uh, but but nevertheless, I was tempted because that's precisely what I thought he was going mm. to do. And you know what? If he had, I think he'd have less problems. I think he. I mean, he is. He. He. You got to give him his due. He's a good. He's. He's a good attention holder. He's fabulous at holding people's attention, right? He isn't the best spoke speaker, no. actually, uh, but he does make good speeches. He writes good speeches and he, and he delivers them well. You know, he's not fast at the dispatch box, but he's good at holding attention. He's good at getting I the identification of the public with him. You know, somebody like that being the chairman of the board 
I think would have been a fabulous position for him. And I think whatever, I don't know whether it was his own judgment or other people advising him. Remember, early on, he was being advised by Cummings and that pack. Uh, who have no respect for any MPs at all, uh, and as a result would probably say, I'll oh, just keep them out. You know. I wonder if Boris Johnson isn't emblematic of a, a wider conservative malaise. I mean, no, nobody seems to know what he stands for, but nobody's quite sure anymore what the Tories stand for, do you? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, it's a matter of debate. It's certainly true. <laughs> you know? The... Um, the, I mean, part of this, part of this is not his fault. Um, you know, when I when I voted for Boris to be leader, I wasn't, I did not foresee COVID. You know, no, I didn't no foresee, one did. Yeah, no, but you know, but that's quite important because that that COVID period sort of blotted out government. It probably shouldn't have, but it did. Yeah, and the the result of which is we sort of forgot what our aims were. You know, we, you, when you when you come out of a general election, you've just got your manifesto, got the rubber stamp of the public approval on it. You hope, and so you then set about uh, carrying it out. Um, all they had the bandwidth for, frankly, was picking up pieces on COVID and picking up pieces on Brexit. Not even driving Brexit forward. So so there was a sort of losing of way, I think, and what. This what this period now we're in right now between now and Christmas is about is trying to refine our way, and a lot of a lot of my fellow Tories were rather uncomfortable at the end of a perfectly workmanlike Queen's speech, but it wasn't a banner flying Queen's speech. It wasn't a Queen's speech saying right we're back to right we're back on an even keel now broadly. It's time to get back to being conservatives. Uh, and that's that's not showing at the moment. Well, let's come on then to the Chancellor's recent statement dealing yeah. with the cost of living crisis, yeah. which yeah. followed a spring statement yeah. uh, that he made. And of course, the budget's coming up in the autumn. Uh, has the Chancellor done enough or too much? Not enough, broadly, but but too much as well. The the, um, the there are sort of two or three different measures here. Measure number one is what's the state of the ordinary family's uh, weekly budget? Yeah. Um, that, in many ways, is the most important thing. The, the test of a country, the test of a government, sorry, is how well it looks after its people. That's what it's there for. That's why it's a democracy. Um, and that on, on that, we're not scoring terribly well. Right? Um, the Chancellor, to be fair to him, was given really duff information by both the Treasury and the Bank of England. On their predictions for on the predictions, economy. They're both completely wrong. You on, know, on inflation. On inflation for the bank, but on tax revenue for the Treasury. Because they underestimated. 90 billion. I mean, that, that, work out what that is. So, so your, your listeners think about this in real money, because 90 billion means what? You know, well, well, it's, it's twice the defence budget. Twice the defence budget, or more pertinent to them, £3,000 per household. We got it wrong by £3,000 a household, right? Um, so they've got tonnes of money coming in. Now, of course, we're still in negative balance, but we're, you know, we're crawling out of COVID, right? But you don't, if you're going to balance, you know, I am a fiscal conservative. If I'm going to balance the books, I balance it over five years or a full cycle, not over the first year out of a crisis. So, so answer your question, uh, at one level, 
he, he was misled in two directions. That meant he's taking too much tax. Should have cancelled NICS, the national insurance increase. Should have cancelled next year's corporation tax increase. Which is increasing from 19 to 25%. That's right. And he shouldn't be increasing, he shouldn't be putting a windfall tax on either. The windfall tax at one level is trivial, right? It will probably raise one billion. He says five billion. Listen, I used to be in the, a big corporation. I was a director of a FTSE 100 company. You know, if I were in their business, I'd be investing like mad, even in negative, in, even in negative outcome projects, to save ninety percent of the of the money in tax. Because that's the tax allowance he's that's now allowed. That's the tax allowance. Basically, for every billion, of every million you invest, you get nine nine hundred thousand back. You know, well. You have to be an idiot not to take that right up to the hilt, right? And it means you'll take all the marginal projects, not all of which will work, but you'll get your tax money back. So, so it's not going to raise that much money, but the symbolism of it is terrible. Not in, just in the energy industry, in fact, less in the energy industry, more everywhere else. People look at Britain and we think of ourselves as a stable tax environment. Are we hell? We've had five windfall taxes over the course of your my career basically you know two in banking and, and and the rest mostly in energy so so you know i'd look at this as a hmm, yeah my cost of capital's a bit higher there i'm not quite in you know, if i've got a ranking order of investment britain's not going to be at the top of it you know so it's done harm on quite a big invisible harm on a big scale it's not got any money in well ha- well we don't know yet i mean it is 25 percent uh, which is quite a lot hmm. uh there and we know the energy companies are awash with the money I mean, the head of BP described his company as a cash machine. That's Mr. Looney you're talking about. Yes, and this is uh, called in the business now <laughs> the Looney Levy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but and so we'll see. I mean, he says five billion. We'll see. I think he may actually get a bit more uh, than that. He may get less, as you say. But there was a case for doing it, was there not? Because it isn't going to affect the investment plans. Uh, well, not the first. Is, not the first cycle. Mrs. Thatcher did it. Uh, Gordon Brown did it. Not all in the energy companies, but you know it was yeah, a yeah. windfall tax. Uh, Gordon Brown did it. We had 10 years of solid economic growth. George yeah. Osborne did it yeah. as well. It doesn't seem to be the big, one way or the other, it doesn't seem to be such a big deal breaker. Well, for me, I mean, firstly, it's, I mean, even if he gets $5 billion, you know, this is this is in a this is in a ninety bit. Bear in mind, the error margin is ninety billion now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid so it's a long way inside the error margin. It's a third, even of his forecast increase in help this time around. Mm-hmm. At you know, at his maximum, you know, because he's putting in twenty one billion. Yeah, to, that's right. That's to help right. And he gets five. What you're really saying is that because the treasury forecasts were wrong, because tax revenues were more buoyant, mm-hmm. because he was taking out the furlough money and mm-hmm. other pandemic spending. That actually, he had enough money to do the package to help families yeah. without a windfall tax. That's, I think, what you say. That's exactly right. He had enough money. I mean, I'll go further than that. He had enough money to cancel NICS, cancel the um, VAT on fuel, um, put the 20 quid back into universal credit, credit. Uh, and then do something on top of that to actually control the cost to subsidise the cost. He could have done all of that way inside the margins that he was working to one year ago when he set the budget that set all those things. Yeah? Um, so I wouldn't have done it this way. I mean, I'm, I'm very old-fashioned. I don't think about, about conservative policy. I don't think 
that a, a Conservative government should basically take all your money away and hand it back as pocket money. I think you're the best decider on how you spend your money, not the government. And that's true whether you are rich or poor, frankly. Um, so, you know, I think that's the first thing to say. Uh, the second thing to say is there is, which we didn't get around to, which is there is a real risk in all this of impinging on growth. And there are two reasons that's a problem. One, it hits his tax revenues for next year. We don't really know where we're going to go. But two, we've got stagflation coming down the line. And if you go into stagflation, low growth, the solutions to stagflation, that is high inflation and low growth together, are incredibly painful. You and I, in our earlier lives, lived through decade and a half of stagflation. It was a nightmare. So it's really, really, really problematic. And I just don't think... I don't think the, the Treasury's got a proper strategy for what's coming. But was the Chancellor right, just to finish up yeah. on this cost of living package, was the Chancellor right to target resources that he had uh, on those who most needed it? You know, these basically what I would call helicopter money. Yeah. He was sending, he's sending a check uh, to, to people rather than what a lot of Tories wanted was, oh, cut tax, cut tax, you know, take a penny off income tax, take 5% or five percentage points of VAT. Mm. Was he right to do it that way? Because these broader tax cut ways would have also resulted in more money for a lot of people who weren't necessarily first in the queue to get more money. No, they're not. But the but the simple truth is we are you know, we collected last year the greatest quantity of tax ever in the history of this country, ever, you know. We are at the top end of the tax burden. We need to bring it down. I would have altered the balance. You're quite right. I'd have altered the balance to give as much back as... Well, actually, not to take away in the first place, mm. as much as possible from most people. The national insurance rise was clearly a big mistake, was it not? Huge mistake, huge mistake. And it didn't have to be done. It was unnecessary, completely unnecessary. I mean, to put the numbers in context, we, 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 we talked about the 90 billion... Uh, um, error, the national insurance was about 13, 14 billion. Correct. That sort of order of magnitude. Right. So, per year. So, so it's one sixth of the error. Yeah, and we must expect that error to carry on because, mm. you know, the truth is we're going to grow from a higher base next year. So, so I would have given more, I would have taken less money in the first place and then done some focus work to make sure they're very poor. But remember I said I would also put back the 20 quid, which they should never have taken out. They put they, they, For the universal credit. For the universal credit, credit exactly, because yeah. that's really, really important. And you know, people, it's food money. It's not, it's not just energy. Yeah. Everything's going up. Tenders, and it would be spent. And it would be spent. And it would go back into the economy. And you know, it doesn't matter whether you have an effective demand, a Keynesian model of growth, mm -hmm. or you have... Um, a supply side model of growth, you know, both of them will be helped by lower taxes and putting that money back into universal credit. OK, well, if the Chancellor's listening, I'm sure he's taking notes. <laughs> Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. You were a leading Brexiteer. Hmm. Are you disappointed by what Brexit has delivered so far? Um, well, it, well, let me put it this way. I mean, two things to say, three things to say. One, that the roof haven't fallen in. We haven't had the, the, the George Osborne disaster. The, pu- the, the punishment budget. The punishment budget and all that stuff, you know. Uh, if anything, slightly better than, uh, than, than other people uh, in this game. Number two, we haven't, however, made the rapid progress... Uh, on regulation that I would have liked in the new industries. I don't care about the rest. In the new industries that we that we should have done. And thirdly, I'm afraid the very reason I resigned from the cabinet, which all flowed from Northern Ireland, when when uh, Theresa May uh, said to the Commission she would accept full alignment between the North of Ireland and the South. Um, she did that without telling me, and that's why I nearly resigned on the spot. Which meant full alignment with the EU. Full alignment with the EU, which then gives us either an internal border or a crisis, you know. Mm. Um, uh, and that has not yet been resolved. Which I want to yeah. come on. Yeah. But people didn't vote for Brexit because the roof wouldn't fall in. What have the benefits of Brexit been? Well, one of them is just democracy, frankly. I mean, let me... Let me um, uh, when, when, before I was Brexit Secretary, when we were having the referendum, um, my, my wife uh, had a new kitchen installed to punish me for taking all the time off from, from home. And every time I came back, I, I met a new bunch of builders, painters, decorators, and so on. Uh, they all come from West Yorkshire. They all come from the industrial north, all red wall, you, you might think of, right? And the sorts of comments that came back to me. Comment number one, painter and decorator. Uh, you, you for in or out, Mr. Davis, I'm out. Yeah, me too. Why? Immigration. I thought, oh, dear, here we go. You know, we're going to get a bigoted response. I said, don't you like foreigners? He said, no, no, no. He said, if I were a Bulgarian or Pole, I'd be here. He said, I know entirely what they're doing is right for them as family. He said, the only trouble is, Mr. Davis, I haven't had a pay increase in 10 years. And if I didn't employ him, my son wouldn't have a job. Well, we're not in that position anymore. We, you know, we, if anything, we've got a, a labour deficit in the country. Well, we have 1.3 million vacancies, yeah, which exactly. is exactly. A, a record. Yeah. And non-EU immigration seems to be That's right. at record levels. That's did right. you tell the builder that? Oh, yeah, well, I did. I said, I said, you do understand we'll be opening it up. It won't be for painters and decorators necessarily, yeah. but for so, doctors and people like that. We'd be... So overall, has it made any difference to the immigration numbers, well, it's, it's, because it was a numbers concern for a lot well, of people. Well, it was, it was, it was. That, that's my point. It was an effect concern. 
you know, on his own wages and so on. And you're beginning to see that come through. Now, it means we've got to solve other problems about labour shortages, but, uh, uh, but at least we've got control to Which do Which may mean more immigration. Yeah, it may do. But, you know, at least we control it and we do it in such a way it doesn't so, harm our own people. But the second one, let me finish. I am struggling to hear the benefits so right. far. Well, no, that's, that's one. The, the, the second one is, is it was a comment relating to the punishment budget. And you remember the £4,000 penalty in the Indeed. And as I, literally as I drove in, I got out of my car. Uh, this guy who runs his own building firm said, Mr. Davis, can you tell Mr. Osborne from me, £4,000 for my freedom, cheaper the price. You know, and he's talking about our right to make our own decisions. And that's actually important. It's not very but, visible, no, but it's, but it's important. But I'm not quite sure what decisions we're now taking. For example, one vision, it's a shorthand which covers as much as it illuminates, but one vision was called Singapore on Thames. That we, yeah, it was we, a daft one, but never we, mind. <laughs> but we, yeah, but it was a Tory vision. It was we'd go for lower tax, smaller government, fewer regulations, and regulations which were more suited to Britain mm. rather than Europe-wide. But since we left under this Conservative government, we've got higher tax, bigger government, and just as many regulations. Um so it wasn't Singapore on Thames, was it? It was, well, Par- uh, it was Paris on the, Thames. The, the, re- the reason you see me smiling, <laughs> yeah. I mean, your, your, your audience can't see me smiling, is that it's the person who coined uh, uh, Singapore on, Ch- on Thames was uh, Remainer-in-Chief Philip Hammond, of course. And it was why I went to Vienna and say, no, this is not what we mean. We actually mean, we don't mean massively rewriting the regulation of all the, uh, uh, of all the conventional industries. It's the new industries that matter. And we have got some move on that. We are moving on that. But that'll take time to deliver. And I I make no bones about that, Andrew. It will take time to deliver on on the regulatory changes. Why are, you dis- ne- are you disappointed? No. I, well, let me be accurate. I don't think we have done as good a job as we could have done, but I'm not, I don't think we're, uh, that Brexit was wrong. I just think it's going to take longer to deliver. And part of that's COVID, and part of that's the deflection of the, of the current government. Do you miss being in government? Not really. <laughs> because, you know, you talk uh, fluently and with some passion on these issues of, of government. Um, but now you're outside. Don't you sometimes think, look, I know what to do. I wish I was back in and I could do it. No, I mean, the... I'm 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 quirky. Of all your, of all, if uh, I don't know how many MPs you ever get in here, but when you get them in, I'll be uh, you'll, not too many. You'll find I'd be an unusual one, and and the reason for that is over the course of thirty something years, I have found that you can do if you are smart about it, you can do as much outside government as in. You know, um, it the extent to which you can varies depends a bit on the majority. Big majority is harder than a small majority. Um, but you can do as much outside as in if you choose to. And also you can pick your own subject. Of course, you know, Brexit secretary, you got command over. Well, you hope you got command over Brexit. Um, uh, but nothing else, you know, nothing else. Whereas now I'm, you know, it's, it's about it's about the economy one week. You, you can talk about what you want. Brexit and, and you can influence what you want. Most of my colleagues don't know the machinery of influence. Let me let me give you one current example. Uh, 12 weeks ago, the day after I intervened on Boris, that, the, the very next day on the Thursday, the most important thing I did that week wasn't that. most important thing I did, I did that week was to start a debate in the House of Commons about controlling oligarchs. 
The Russian oligarchs the above Russian, all. The Russian oligarchs principally, yes. Uh, it was about lawfare and money and money laundering and cover-ups and all that. And I got 20 people to come and give a very expert debate. Now those people are the core of the new policy. You know? you, if you know what you're doing, you can do that. You know, you, you've got to be able to deploy the, the parliamentary weapons. Truth be told, they're getting weaker over time as governments try deliberately weaken them. But you can do both. And you, know? you can influence the process. Yeah. I, I understand that. But aren't you also almost just by nature one of its rebels? Uh, I mean, the Times says you're the most rebellious uh, Tory MP in this parliament. Mm, well, I in mean, this parliament, I'm not surprised. <laughs> you, because you haven't got many competitors. But, but don't you enjoy that more than the hard grind of government? No. Actually, rebellion is harder grind than government because, I mean, it, and opposition. And, some, and rebellion is like an internal opposition. Let's be clear about that. Um, uh, it's harder. Opposition and internal rebellion is harder than government. Why? Because you don't have the vast re legions of staff. You have to mm. do the work yourself. Uh, I think you referred to me removing home secretaries. Mm. That was like doing a non-stop finals exam. Yeah. Because, you know, you're, 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 you're poor. I mean, I know you, of all interviewers, pour through the data. You love reading the background and you love understanding the details. That's what you have to do if you are... Uh, an opponent of the government in power, so uh, well, you know whether it's as rebel or as opposition. So it's 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 harder work in many ways. The but the truth is, I like both. Actually, the truth is, I like I love being a minister, but I also love being an MP. You know, I love being a minister in you know when I was Europe minister, you know, or ca or a cabinet office minister, you know, or you know, uh, and I uh, and I like being shadow home secretary. They're all fun. Look, listen, we we are. Parliamentarians are some of the most privileged people in the world. They have huge power if they know how to exercise it. They have huge influence even if they don't exercise power. Um, they have the right to step in and be Robin Hood at a moment's notice for all sorts of people. Uh, and, of course, even on an individual level, you can do it too. So, crikey, I mean, there's nothing to complain about. It's a bloody good job. <laughs> One thing that you've, uh, you've campaigned for on several fronts particularly when you're on the back benches, has been civil liberties. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where does that come from, the, the, your concern for civil liberties, your desire to improve them, your sense of when authoritarianism rears its head? Where does that come from? When I was very young, I was brought up by my grandfather, who's a communist, uh, and although communists aren't necessarily known for civil liberties, some of the uh, causes he espoused were sort of anti-establishment causes and, and, and made me think about the importance of curbing the power of the state. Um, some of it was seeing how the state behaved when I was a member of it. <clears throat> you know, the, I wasn't always very impressed by the way people misuse power. When you it. saw it from the inside. Saw it from the inside. Some of it, I think in many ways, probably the most influential was, was when I was Public Accounts Committee chairman. Uh, which is the best job in the world. And probably the most powerful of the House of Commons cases. Yeah, it, it is. It, it, well, it was in my day, and I, I assume it still is, but it certainly was in my day. You were as powerful as any anybody other than the top four in government. You know, you're more powerful than most 
most cabinet ministers. Uh, and of course, again, you can choose your subjects and range anywhere. Mm. And you have 700 fantastic civil servants in the National Audit Office, really, really good people. Um, and you can actually deliver. I mean, I, when I did it, it was I, I made a th- roughly a thousand recommendations to the government, of which 950 were carried out. Gives you a sort of measure of it. So, but but the point about that, my joke about it, is when I'm talking to you know, Tory audiences, I say, you know, for five years I questioned the people who really run the country, the, the permanent secretaries or the, the Sir Humphrey Applebee's, if you like. Of in, each government department. Uh, of, the, of each government department in the yes minister thing, you know. And I said, the difference between you and me is that after me doing that for five years, you think yes minister's a comedy. I know it's a training film. Given your interest and in support for civil liberties, uh, when you look at what the government is doing with the online safety bill, which mm-hmm. is currently going through Parliament, or the policing bill, yeah. or some various others. Uh, do you detect a, an authoritarian drift to this government? Because it, given that Boris Johnson's always thought to be a kind of libertarian... Yeah, which is never true. But it wasn't true. So do you no. detect that kind of oh, drift? It's never true. I mean, ask, the, the proper test of that is when did Boris make a sacrifice to protect liberties? You know, that's the test. You know, mm. we'll take on a real battle and make a sacrifice. No, there is, there, is a, there is an authoritarian drift. I mean, part of it is because of um, populism, really, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, you know, For oh, playing to the crowd. Yeah. The Rwanda policy is an example, for example. The, the, uh, dealing with the yeah, yeah, illegal send, migrants. Yeah, sending sending uh, uh, illegal migrants or illegal asylum seekers uh, to a country which has got malaria, dengue fever, schistomasiasis, I mean, you know, you name it. Um, uh, <laughs> if we sent prisoners there... I think we might be in court, you know. So, you know, criminals. Well, you might be in court anyway. Yeah, we might be in court anyway. But so, so you've got all of that sort of stuff. Um, and and also, I mean, there's a, there's a degree of thoughtlessness again. Let me give you an example. There was a thing called the Overseas Offences Bill. It was trying to do pretty much the same thing as the current legacy um, legislation last week uh, in Northern Ireland to protect soldiers from, <clears throat> if you want it in the sort of, Boris terms, you know, ambulance chasing lawyers, all of that, right? And the Overseas Offences Bill was because they were worried about people coming from Afghanistan or Iraq and chasing down soldiers and prosecuting them years and years afterwards, right? I said to them, you do this, you're going to be in terrible trouble because, you know, you can't put a statute of limitations on murder or torture, you know, or war crimes or genocide, you know. Um, and they just ignored it and ignored it and just uh, until I got uh, George Robertson, ex-head of NATO. Indeed, former in, Labour uh, cabinet yeah, minister. In the Lords. And six chiefs of the defence staff to sign the equivalent of my amendment in the Lords. And, all, and, and, and I also got the, in, the International Criminal Court to write them and say, by the way, we'll prosecute if you don't. And then they dropped it. And so it was just carelessness. It was pig-headedness, frankly. Um, and so you've got a mixture of populism and carelessness which, which uh, drives this. And it's one of the reasons, it's one of the, you know, much of our discussion today, Andrew, has been about the direction of the Conservative Party. And the reason it's important for parties to have a direction is because it, it, it immunises you against this sort of carelessness, you know, this sort of giving in to populism. When because you have some guidelines. You've got some guidelines. And what's more, you know, it also immunises you to some extent from a tendency in modern times to think that a focus group or an opinion poll or the opinion of a sort of 27-year-old PPE graduate 
uh, are somehow better than the wisdom of all the people who went before us. You uh, were first elected as an MP in 1987. Could you give us a good example of what you believe then, but you don't believe now, where you've, on a major issue, you've changed your mind? Yeah, I can't. <laughs> You're consistent. Either consistently wrong or consistently right. Yeah, well, exactly, right. consistently wrong, possibly. But, um, you know, like, you know, I think civil liberties, well, now I was a member of Amnesty International. Way back then? When I was 18. Right. I'll tell you what. Yes, there is one, I think. And not so much changes of direction as belief that things are now possible that they weren't before. The reform of the National Health Service... I think for most of my political career, it's been impossible for the Conservative Party to address it properly, uh, and the Labour Party has never wanted to. And I think in the last few years, the public appetite has changed. You do? Yeah. I, I thought the pandemic kind of made the NHS untouchable. The aftermath of the pandemic has made the NHS subject to lots of criticism. You know, I mean, a little village near me had almost had a riot because they couldn't get to see their GP, you know. People are getting more and more people complaining now because they can't get their cancer tests or their cancer treatment and so on. And I think there's a great deal of that. And that is coinciding with a huge change in technology, whether it's gene technology or scanning technology. And I don't think the current NHS is well equipped to cope with that. So I think, you know, I actually think that for the first time in my political career, that issue is capable of redress. The, or, or, or being addressed properly and fixed. The other, difficult, and it will be controversial, and be, you know, we may win and lose elections on it, but that, that can be done. I assume that you think your ministerial career is over, but not your backbench career. My backbench career is certainly not over. Um, I intend to continue unless the good people of East Yorkshire decide I'm no use anymore. Um, the, uh, the ministerial care pff, depends who's in power, depends what happens, you know. Um, if we had suddenly had a change of government and the new leader said, uh, we need a chancellor or we need a home secretary or we need a foreign secretary, I could probably do those. Uh, but, you know, uh, the truth is when Boris got in, uh, he and I had a meeting and um, he thought it was about. He thought I was going to see him about court case. I was bringing against the government. I'm afraid I said no, no, Boris, you're going to lose the court case. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so he threw everybody out the room, and he said, "What do you want?" I said, "What do you mean? What do you want? What do I want?" He said, um, "Well, if you hadn't have resigned, I wouldn't have resigned, and if we hadn't have resigned." We'd still both be sitting here talking about withdrawal agreement number 14 and a half. I said, yeah, I know that. That's why I resigned, you know, to stop that process. He said, so what do you want? Uh, and I said, nothing you can give me, Boris. Um, because, you know, he had the, he'd, he'd allocated the jobs that might have been interesting. At that time, it turned out I had a personal family issue about a disabled child to sort out. And, you know, I wasn't interested at that point in time. But you never know. You know, you never know. I'm, so I don't write it off completely, but I don't, I don't lie awake at night or any other time <laughs> worrying about it, you know. Because precisely what I said, you know, you don't need to be in government to make a big difference. David Davis, thank you. My pleasure. 
Tortoise members and subscribers to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts can hear my reflections on that conversation in a bonus episode called Inside the Interview, which comes out every Friday during the series. You can join our newsroom for £50 a year by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash Andrew and entering the code andrewneil 50 that's five zero, and all one word. This episode was mixed by Studio Klong with original music by Tom Kinsella. The executive producer of The Backstory is Lewis Vickers. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book.